Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up posts, Another Weekends, which is sort of like our Christian's grace-infused cosmopolitan guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects to discuss the contents of Another Weekends. But first, I had the privilege this week of talking with Jennifer Underwood. She's a licensed attorney in both New York and Texas, but she traded high heels and ambition for wet kisses, warm hugs, and in her own words, sticky boogers from her three children. She lives in Houston, Texas, and blogs over at the Houston Moms Blog. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Jennifer Underwood, who you are part of the Houston Moms blog. And I came across your your blog because you recently reviewed Sarah Condon's book, Churchy, and she actually sent it to me. And I, I was really touched by your words about her book and about the podcast and really enjoyed looking around your writing at the blog. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be, to be here. <laughs> No, so when I got on on the Houston Moms blog, I thought that it was going to be like a Houston Moms blog, but there's this whole team. I mean, you guys have advertisers. I mean, this is like this is like a thing. I mean, this is a pretty big Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's about uh 20 moms who write for Houston Moms blog. Um, and you know, Houston is a really large, diverse city, so um the the team of writers is also very like large and diverse and have all sorts of backgrounds. And um, it's just a crew of, of really great, great women. So how did you become a part of it? I mean, uh, what, like, were you in on the ground floor or in how long did, how long did it take before it kind of became like a fairly established and kind of burgeoning project? Dang. So, um, so Kelly Davis is our founder. She lives out in Katy and she, um, my brother and sister-in-law live in Katy. Oh, really? Bindi, I've stayed in Katy. Oh, really? Well, several of the writers live in Katy. Actually, there for a while there was. Uh, we just added a whole bunch of of new writers on, but for a while there was like this huge Katy contingent. So, <laughs> a lot of things were focused out in the Katy area, which is actually kind of far for me. But um, that's where Kelly Davis lives, and she uh, was the founder. And so, I feel like maybe maybe about four years ago was when they started it, um, and. So, and, you know, the readership has just grown and grown and, um, you know, people will come on and they'll write for a while for the period of time in their life when they are able to, and then they'll move on and some new writers will come on. Um, but yeah, it's just gotten bigger and bigger. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a great thing. Like I, um, uh, among the writers, there's always like, there's like a spread of political views and, um, views on like everything. So it's always interesting to, um, read other people's perspectives and realize that you're probably going to be at a party where you're going to be spending time with that person <laughs> a few days afterwards. So. Do you socialize with these? I mean, how often do you all see each other? Like the group of you? So we have, there's um, events for the writers. We actually just had one this past Wednesday um, that Kelly set up, which was super fun. And all of the writers got together and, in Rice Village and kind of did a progressive event where we went from uh, store to store and then restaurant to restaurant. Um, 
but you know, and then there are like people who are friends, uh, just because, you know, they bond together for whatever reason, um, uh, sort of in smaller groups, but yeah, we have like, like large group wise events, I'd say a couple times a year. And then, you know, um, they also have events for not just the people who are part of the blog, but just moms in Houston. Like last year they had an Easter egg hunt. Um, and they uh, sold tickets to the Easter egg hunt. So, you know, I guess if you're like new to Houston or if you're just looking to reach out to other moms, then um, it was a good way to kind of get those people together um, where they could meet each other and their kids could play together. So, And we should say for our listeners to check this out, because my guess is you have a, a, a readership that's well beyond Greater Houston at this point. Well, I mean, you I definitely have so. at least me. At least me. I mean, I'm not in Greater Houston. Uh, neither is David Zoll. And we both. Uh, so this is Houston dot city moms blog.com yes yeah you you describe yourself as someone who traded in your high heels and your ambition for wet kisses warm hugs and sticky boogers from your three <laughs> children now i'm wondering like do you really have to trade in your high heels like because you you stop practicing law or do you just kind of like i mean can you and what did you trade them in for like kittens or <laughs> <laughs> or like Crocs. I mean, you should, you still wear heels right now and well, again. I, I do, would... but only to church. That's, that's that's pretty much it. I still wear the high heels to church. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all you. Uh, yeah, I trade them in for my Converse, I guess, and my flip flops. <laughs> sort of <laughs> what I wear these in rain boots. That's what I get to wear these days. <laughs> so, so what what led to the decision for you to? You were practicing law. Now, you're, you're licensed in New York and Texas. Did you live in New York before? I did. I went to New York right out of law school. Um, I did uh, M&A at a firm called Skadden, which is um, uh, it's, it's well known in the legal world. So I went to New York right out of law school. I thought that I wanted to leave Texas for a while and kind of be a part of the larger world, um, having been born here and grown up here. And so I went to New York, and I was there for, I guess, maybe a year and a half, um, or close to two years. Um, and then I moved back to Texas. So where did you live in, in New York? In, like, were you like right in Manhattan? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I lived in Chelsea. I lived at um, 26th and 6th. So when you like go to law school, and, like, and you're thinking, I'm going to move to New York. Like, is there a movie you're imagining your life is going to become like? <laughs> well, so the t- <laughs> uh, this is like horrible though. But like, so the time period that this was, I graduated law school in 2003. Like Sex in the city was all the rage. I'm not saying that that's like the lifestyle I wanted um, in all of those aspects, certainly not. But like in terms of like, you know, uh, so yeah, you think that was sort of what you imagine that New York is like and what you think the world there is going to be like, you know, you with a bunch of your girlfriends having these lives and experiences together and, um, you know, wearing fabulous clothes and having great jobs and all of that. And of course, that's a television show. <laughs> exactly. That way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But well, I mean, so like, if like, how much of of New York lived up to your expectations? I mean, a lot. Well, like- so I actually loved New York, and um, I still like. Uh, even after I left New York, I continued to um, work from Houston. A lot of our business was in New York, so I would fly to New York all the time. And even just like flying near it, I would have this feeling when I saw it of like what a wonderful city it was. Um, I loved New York. So I loved that sort of <laughs> kind of, you know, I love that you were never really alone, but you kind of were like, you could be in a crowd of like 50,000 people and they were all sort of like ignoring you, but, <laughs> but you weren't alone. Right. right. And if you're kind of, you know, I'm a bit of an introvert. So that 
was comfortable to me. Like I felt like I wasn't alone, but nobody was bothering me. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like, you know, as someone who made a choice to be a stay at home mom, right? Mm-hmm. It, do you feel like in this kind of in contemporary culture, I, I feel like people get judged if they work full time, then they get judged if they had a career that they were satisfied in, but chose to stay at home because of their family's needs. I feel like, is there, I feel like everybody judges people that have made your decision one way or the other. Do you feel that? Are people yes, like, I mean, absolutely. Are your colleagues like, oh my gosh, why are you staying home? Like, you know, you had this yeah. law career. All the time, all the time. And, you know, of my core group of girlfriends, I'm the only one who did that. I'm the only one who left all the way to stay home. And, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's awful because no matter what you choose to do, you're wrong. Like either, you know, you're working all the time and people are looking at you like, because you're letting your nanny raise your kids or you're staying at home and people are like, wow, you just set phonism back like 50 years. Thanks a lot. You know, um, so it's sort of like no matter what you do, you can't really win. And if you try to sort of straddle the line, um, you know, well, okay, I'll work part time and part time not. That doesn't really work as well either in today's world where like you're always expected to be accessible. So you can't ever really, you know, if you try to do that, that's difficult too. And that often doesn't work in the legal world anyway because you have clients and they want you 24 hours a day. And um, you can't be like, well, I'm at the playground right now. where where have you found grace in that i mean where where how do you how do you survive the kind of uh identity head games that you know we well we all have identity head games specifically related to kind of the decisions you made around career and family stuff yeah well i mean so that took like years um because i think as much as other people judge me i judge myself too for doing that like and it was constantly like second guessing whether this was the right thing or not Um, but I think like the more I got comfortable with what is it that I think is important and where do I think my time is most valuably spent? And, um, you know, I think raising those little kids and, and trying to guide them and direct them into the world to become people who will hopefully, you know, contribute to it in a positive way. Like, I think that is extremely important and I feel like I can best do that if I'm at home with them to do it. Um, Hmm. And so I That's, think like just kind of getting comfortable with that and knowing that people are going to be unhappy with me, no matter what decision you make, people are always going to think you should have done something else. And you just kind of have to like rest comfortably with that, that I'm comfortable that this is what I think I should be doing. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that, uh, um, I don't think I would be able to sit comfortably with that if it weren't right. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 You had some kind of inner peace about it. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Developed. It's like, you know, when you make those decisions that you're not sitting comfortably with, it eats you on the inside, right? <laughs> Something's working inside you that's letting you know that that decision is probably not the right one. So I don't think I would feel good about it over the long term if if it weren't the right choice for me. You wrote a piece in September talking about this on the blog from law practice to soccer practice. One mom's decision to ditch the rat, rat race. And you have sort of four insights that I think are really interesting for people that are making this decision, right? Like, and we had somebody on the podcast, like, well, time, Stephanie Phillips, who writes for Mockingbird sometimes. It's a very similar kind of process. She was a dentist and, and decided to be a mom full time uh-huh. and stay at home. You say that you'll, first you'll miss dealing with adults. <laughs> 
that you're that uh, that you'll still have to deal with well first actually you'll still have to deal with irrational people all day long you'll miss dealing with adults your friend circle will profoundly change and people will treat you differently so how are they treating you differently could you could you just expound on that yeah. a little bit yeah, so that that is a rough one. So, and I noticed even, um, and I may have put this in there or not, but the example of you know when I would even just go into a grocery store after work and I was wearing a suit and was you know dressed professionally and it was clear that I had just come from doing something that the world anyway values as important, and I would just be in the grocery store and people treat you a lot differently. Um, you know, when you're dressed nice, whatever assumptions they make about you based on that, um, and the, the fact that you're out in the world working, that's very different than when you go to a grocery store and you're in your yoga pants and you stink and like you have coffee in one hand and a screaming baby in another. They just, um, the way that they interact with you is completely different. There's like a total different level of respect. <laughs> so. When did yoga pants become the thing that was like a thing? Like now it's, it's become a, like a uniform state. Like I always think like if, you know, my wife and I have joked about like, you know, there's, there's forever 21. Like you, yeah. could, you could open a store called forever 29 and just sell yoga pants and wine. <laughs> or 39. Or for, for, yeah, right. For yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that could be the thing. I mean, that's, it's very interesting that that Well, for one like, thing, they're comfortable, right? They're really comfortable. And, you know, if you're like standing up and standing down and getting on the floor and playing with kids and getting on, you know, picking people up off the playground. If you're wearing like jeans or something else, like it's just, you know, you're always pulling them up or tugging them and like at least the yoga pants keep you covered and <laughs> you're not, you know, flashing yourself or um, anything else at the playground. <laughs> I feel like the only options guys have like that to success, like Target makes some really thin Jeans are basically like jeggings for men. Yeah, you know, like the Denzi and Levi's, like that. That's as that's as close. I wouldn't as we recommend can get. going with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I have two pair. I, I've yeah, I don't mind jeggings for men. I mean, they're you know they're comfortable. They're kind of you know relaxing. And, you know that sort of thing. So how did you find? How did you come across Mockingbird? Like how did that get on your radar? Okay, so um, David Browder, who's the rector of our church, um, St. Thomas's Episcopal, has been involved with Mockingbird, and so. He, um, it's something that's just always kind of around our church. He has your publications are on the tables in the narthex. So, um, you know, that people pick them up and, um, he references Mockingbird often. Um, and the, just the members of our church, you'll see, you can see it on Facebook that, um, people are reading y'all's blog. You see them share y'all's posts, um, or they talk about it. Um, uh, so I think, yeah, that's kind of how that got introduced to me um, was through David. And this is St. Thomas. Let's give a plug for your church. Like, where? How do, <laughs> what, like, how do people find it? So uh, St. Thomas is Episcopal. So it's, um, oh my gosh, let me, off the top of my head, I'm so bad with remembering things. I'm trying to think of what the website is. So it's in Meyerland. If you're familiar with Houston at all, it's in Southwest Houston. Um, and um, it started in the 50s and a lot of people are also familiar with the school because there's a school that's connected with it that's um pretty a pretty well-known school in houston that's great so they can google my yeah Myers. i think it's like st thomas houston.com i think st. that's st thomas houston.com if not they can they can send you a message or something on the mom's blog yes and the school is stes.org so you can find the church through the school's website too i think now, you said that Sarah Condon is your mom crush in this, in this review of her. You wrote a short review of, of her book, Churchy. I'm so embarrassing right now. Do you want to stand by that? 
<laughs> and I'm pretty close with her. So you could, if you want to do, like, I could probably connect you to, if you wanted to go on, like, a mom date, like, I could, <laughs> I could matchmake right here. I mean, well, I can make this worth your while. Well, we have a mutual friend. Um, my rector's wife, Carrie, is a, is a friend of Sarah's also. And she's always like, I should see if, you know, we should all get coffee. And I'm like, I would be so embarrassed now. <laughs> That would just be mortifying, right? <laughs> no, I just love her, though. I started reading um, her posts through Mockingbird, um, and I kept finding, you know, a lot of times, you know, okay, you see all the posts come through your feed, and I would find the ones I clicked on were frequently ones that she had written. Um, and I just loved her perspective. So I was so excited when I heard that she had a book coming out. Um, and, like, I, I know, like, Mockingbird sent out the, like, the email bust or whatever, like, oh, it's available now. And I clicked on it right away to order it because I was so excited to read it. And then it did not disappoint. It was a wonderful book. Um, and I think just, there's just, I think the things that she has to say are things that moms need to hear these days. Like, um, it's sort of, you know, from the time you first decide that someday you might want to have kids, it was like you're just bombarded over and over again with this is what you need to do. This is what you have to do. Um, you know, follow this checklist of items and you'll get the outcome that you want. And then when it doesn't turn out that way or when we can't fulfill that task, you know, we just feel like shit all the time. And, um, you know, it, it, that, it's a horrible feeling. You just beat, up, beat yourself up about it. And I think that her message is her message of like, you know, it's okay to like suck because you're going to suck. But like, um, you know, God loves you anyway. And like, like be comforted by that. Like, um, like I need to hear that. I need to hear it all the time. And I think other people do too. <laughs> so, but th- I think that's a voice that there's not a lot of voices like that. Um, in today's world. So I, I, I think we need to hear a whole lot more of that and a whole lot less of like, you know, um, five ways to make sure your kid becomes a doctor, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we need good news, not good advice, right? I mean, so often yes. I feel like people in churches so often wind up being in the advice game rather yes. than the good news <laughs> game. Like, Hey, like this is, you know, it's just, it, I, I feel like people, religious people are addicted to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So Well, um, I, yeah. I will pass this along to your mom crush. I will, you know, <laughs> I will let her know that, that she's got fans. Yes. They're yes, local fans. Does. Everybody needs fans. <laughs> yeah. I think there's this cultural stereotype that we're becoming a more and more litigious society. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that is is that as someone who's practiced law uh, do you, do you see, is there something to that? I mean, has it, have you seen, is it, was it always this way or are we just <laughs> noticing it? Or are we really, beca- is that, I mean, it's, it, it seems like every square inch of our culture, you find this litigious kind of uh, culture. Well, and I think, um, I think people like rules, like they don't like to follow them, but I think that rules make them comfortable. Um, that's sort of, what I've seen, you know, a sort of like you break the rule, you pay this price or, um, you do something to me that you shouldn't have done. Therefore I'm going to find some sort of retribution. Like, I think people find that sense of justice to be comforting ironically because nobody wants it applied to them. Um, so yeah, I mean, and I, I think like the legal world is also becoming more accessible to people. Um, and so that is probably part of that increase, I think. Um, in terms of, you know, it, it used to be kind of, well, only certain people like had lawyers that they had like a contact or if they um, were particularly wealthy, they might have a lawyer. But, you know, the average person doesn't necessarily have a lawyer. Um, and I think that's changing. That's probably um, 
I don't know if, I mean, I guess it's good for everyone to have access to a lawyer, but I'm not sure that like, um, we really need all the extra (laughs) litigiousness. (laughs) Underwood is your married name, right? It was not your No, that's my maiden name. Yeah. Oh, oh, Underwood is your maiden name. Okay. So like, how did your relationship to the name Underwood change after House of Cards? and I, we love that show. We just love it. Well, and I actually, I have an uncle whose name is Frank Underwood. So that kind of cracks me up too. <laughs> and his yeah. initials like Frank's are F-U. F-U right? so, yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's pretty great. So it is. I mean, and you know, hearing President Underwood is always like kind of a fun thing. So <laughs> we love that show. What do you miss most about uh, being in active legal practice? Because there's something that you, you really still miss um, I, I do miss interacting with adults on a regular basis. Um, yeah, I, do, I, I miss interacting with adults and I miss that sort of, um, you know, sometimes it sort of feels like your brain is melting from lack of use. And so I think that's part of, you know, why I read as much as I do or why, you know, I, I listen to you guys and you guys always point out like great articles that you've read throughout the week. And I go and I look at those and this give you so much more to think about. So it's sort of counteracts that feeling of your brain going to mush just because, I mean, if you're changing diapers and making food and um, cleaning up after people all day, you just sort of, you feel like you're using like the physical part of your body, but not necessarily your brain as much. And um, uh, it feels unfortunate at times. So I think, yeah, I miss like the adult interaction um, and sort of the social aspect, I guess, of working in an office and like being around other adults. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I, I just, I also miss like the, the thought process that was a part of, of doing that all the time and like having a project and working hard on the project and having the project completed, like that sort of, you know, this is a project that never ends. (laughs) You're a parent for life. Yeah. Which is a good thing. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's no like finish line. (laughs) <laughs> for uh, aspiring lawyers and aspiring moms, <laughs> there, I mean, if, like, what is there something like you wish someone had told you? So, like, is there an insight? This is if I had known this, things would have my journey might have been a little easier. I'm always very suspicious about the sort of upward trajectory view. You know, like when you're in your 20s and you're kind of planning out your career, you just keep thinking like you're on this like. Um, this incline where everything's just going to get better and better and better. And you're just kind of moving up. And then I, you know, I think that's why we use the phrase setback all, you know, often it, we're not really talking like setback in terms of time. We're talking setback in terms of like your goals or like your progression that you expected that you should have in life. Um, and so I, I think what, what I would say was, is that like, it's, it's not about that necessarily, you know, like it's not about always trying to get somewhere and thinking, oh, well, this will be better once I get there. Um, because, like, you know, when you get there, it's always going to be, like, a disappointment if that, if that was your expectation. So I would say that, you know, like, it's, it's less about that. And, um, but it still is always getting better. You know, I kind of, like, I think, you know, your 20s are so hard. Like, you're, there's a lot of, like, angst and, and misery in your 20s. I was kind of laughing. People are like, oh, well, what age, if you could be any age again, what would you want to be in your 20s? And you're like, well, because that's when I looked good and that's when I was like really healthy. And that was, um, you know, you have all these uh, grand plans, but I think the 20s were kind of kind of miserable because, um, you know, you're just, you're struggling all the time and you, you're trying to get somewhere that you think is your destination. Um, and it's all just a matter of like looking forward and planning into the future rather than enjoying what you're in right now. And I think, 
I, I kind of imagine, you know, have this sort of fantasy where like, if someone could have come up to me when I was like, you know, 24, and I thought I knew exactly what I wanted out of the world and like, you know, had shown me just like one little snapshot of like, you know, me with my kids at 38, you know, what, I think it would have just changed my life. I think, um, I would have looked at that and thought, oh my gosh, like who, those are, those are, those are my children that like, that is what I'm supposed to do here. I think it would have changed my perspective completely. Yeah. It's like, we use that phrase, like they're working themselves to an early grave, but actually, I guess in some sense, you're saying that's what the gospel is like death and resurrection. So the earlier you get that, you embrace the death and resurrection, you could start yeah. living posthumously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, and the more comfortable you would be, I think. <laughs> Jennifer, thanks so much for taking some time to talk with us and our yeah. listeners, and thanks for Thank you listening. for having me. I'm very honored. And once again, your people can follow your writing at the Houston, Houston's Mom Blog, which is houston.citymomsblog.com. Yes. Yes. Thanks again. Good evening. Now, normally I say good morning because you all, our listeners, hear the mocking cast at various points of the day because, you know, this thing is it is. There's so many pieces of poetry in motion. Normally, we record on Friday mornings, but because our ministering evangelists, preachers, and spreading of the good news of God's grace are all over the planet, or at least North America this weekend. David, tomorrow you are going to not be at the headquarters. The the zeitgeist is leaving the mothership to go (laughs) to to Dallas with Ethan Richardson. That's correct. That's correct. We'll be in Dallas talking about movies and the grace. And we've got, but everybody that's listening, don't worry, because we've got my dear friend, CJ, watching the store, ably assisted by the associate producer of this podcast, DP David Peterson. So Charlottesville is fine. And Sarah Condon, who's not with us, she'll be in Washington, in D.C., spreading the good news, talking about her book, Leading Retreat. But a special treat this evening. We have, for the first time, sitting in for Sarah, but I mean, I feel like we're giving you your own chair, my lovely wife, Lindy Jones. Good evening. Yay. Big shoes. Big shoes to fill. Big shoes. Thanks for coming on, Lindy. What size What what size shoe are you, Lindy? Wow. I, I wrote 10 and a, wait, nine, Whoa. nine and a half, uh, nine, eight, nine down, women's, down. eight and a half women's down six, seven, seven and a half. Goodness, and a half. My wife would never want that broadcast, uh, her shoe size anywhere. So you're, thank you. You're, I, I'm in awe. I'm in awe right now of the vulnerability. If anyone would like to purchase me a nice pair of high heels, you can <laughs> heels. contact Mockingbird Ministries for our address. <laughs> 200 cherries. Well, I shouldn't say that. I, I shouldn't put that out there. Just you know. I'm acting like we're popular enough to have stalkers. But what do you think Sarah's shoe size is? Oh, she's definitely a six. Dainty. She, dainty feet. Dainty feet. Oh. Not a dainty personality. But She's like all of us women. We all wear a size seven shoe and weigh 120 pounds. We're getting an education this evening on the Mockingcast. Yeah. So, well, okay. Do, doing the housekeeping. If you're in Dallas, 
where can they go hear you, David? We're going to be at the Covenant School. I honestly don't know where that is. I've only been to Dallas one time before. Um, but uh, a good friend of ours down there has just been extremely gracious to kind of put this together. It's, it's almost like a it's an independent event, but it's being hosted at that school. The information's on the conference website. Uh, if you go to conference.ember.com and there's a little Dallas little button. If you, you know, if, if you listen uh, to this tomorrow and you want to come Saturday morning, uh, we'll be there. It's free and, uh, you know, we'd love to see you. And let me just say, this is not a covenant school. This is the definite article. It's the covenant school. So if you were thinking, eh, 50, 50, I'm, I'm 45 minutes away. This is not just one. It's the, the definite article. Indeed. Indeed. And Sarah will be at church. What church is Sarah at the retreat? For? She's doing all saints Chevy chase where my father used to be. Uh, he was for a very brief moment in time was the rector there for about 18 months. And, uh, that's where I was married. So Sarah is following in the footsteps of John O'Linebaugh and uh, R.J. Heyman, two very dear friends, and leading this parish retreat. And I, th- I have a feeling they're just going to eat her up with a spoon. And also, Chevy Chase will be there. Like, it's not just a Chevy Chase family. Chevy, Chevy Chase Ch- will really be there? Chevy Chase is attending. Why wasn't I invited to this? Well, that's, so we didn't tell everybody that because we didn't want to be full of ourselves. But Chevy uh. Chase will be there. So if you're thinking about going... You can see Sarah and Chevy Chase. I would be so tempted to quote quote movies to him if I went. I would be very geeky. I think he would love that, though. (laughs) I don't know. So let's just say, as we roll into another weekend, there's an article that it doesn't merit discussion because it's so self-evident, the truth of it, that the more you swear, the more honest you are. This comes to us from the New York Times Magazine. Basically, there's been this algorithm of... People that swear on social media, they they submit their data to this not this a study um, called David. What is this study that I don't know? Some study, <laughs> some it, study. It's, it's science. Science of Us reported it, and it sounds like they're. Is it that they're perceived as more honest, Scott? Or are they actually more honest? I think I think it said they actually they actually are, are on their metric. No, we could we could argue about their metric, but. There was a strong correlation. Is that how they worded it? Yes. It was weighted towards honesty. Hell yeah. But uh, uh, I know there's something called my, yeah, (laughs) well, you just perceived, you just, you just, you just value this. (laughs) So you can go to mypersonality.org and I'm going to do this. I was going to do it before the podcast, but I was tending to other things, but I'm going to do it tonight and you can be metered. So, like, you can put yourself in if you doubt this or don't believe this. So, so anyway, moving on, we don't have time to do four articles tonight. So, we're just doing three, but that's just an honorable mention because everybody knows this. Sarah Condon swears a lot. As, as do I. Is that why as I do you. Asked? Exactly. As do you. <laughs> I swear. I, I think I swear the mo- out of the uh, – let's throw Sarah in the mix. You and Sarah are probably the same – no, I'm probably at the same level. David it definitely swears less than us. <laughs> well, I, I, you know what? 
I don't think it has anything to do with my honesty, but I'll just throw that out there. So, yeah. <laughs> I know that was kind of a backhanded compliment. Yeah, I always feel it's more of like uh, just people. Are you, are you feeling that? You're very, you're very. David's virtuous. less honest because he doesn't swear. Well, he's a pious. He's a pious soul. The enemy, know, of course, is what, like what a trap here. What a trap. <laughs> Other, I, either I, either I confess to being, uh, you know, having a potty mouth, or, uh, or, or you're dishonest, or just I'm just a phony. So. Anyway, you're caught in a trap and Elvis lives. We're caught in a trap. I can't walk out because I love you too much, baby. Let's move on to something uh, that's equally involved with the internet and a little more profound, or at least. Uh, Foucault. They do quote Foucault. Foucault. There it is a Foucault reference. David, what do we got from the Ion? Talking from Ion, we have shame on you. Unburdening ourselves online can feel radical and liberating, but is bearing and sharing all as, emancipa- as emancipatory as it seems? Now, this was written by a professor of philosophy at Maryland uh, Institute College of Art named Furman de Brabender. So just an incredible name, uh, which is sort of what caught hey, my eye. And at the Mar- it's like a Furman Debrometer, not at Harvard, <laughs> Yale, you know, University of London School of Economics, School of Economics, Maryland Institute of Art. Yeah, I, amazing. <laughs> I, I I love this guy already, or a girl. I don't know what I don't know what, what a Furman. <laughs> What what gender yeah. that might connote? Anyway, uh, it's an incredible article, and uh, I was so glad we're talking about it. Um, begins he's, he's, he's he she begins by talking about the well known contradiction in the way that many of us behave online. That is, we know that we're being watched all the time, and we pay lip service to the evils of surveillance by Google and the government and big corporations. Um, and yet, th- at the same time, the bounds of what's considered too personal, revealing, or banal to be uploaded uh, and shared with our circle of social media followers seems to shrink by the day. The digital media have radically transformed our conceptions of intimacy and shame, and they've done so in ways that are unpredictable and paradoxical. He, now, I'm just going to, for the sake of ease, say it's a he. Uh, Furman uh, quotes Michel Foucault, and uh, who believed that... W- he, he, in talking about Jeremy Bentham's uh, prison design of the Panopticon, not not the book, the uh, prison uh, design, that in the present, but not, un- but not unrelated, <laughs> not no, not unrelated. Your dad actually quotes it. He does, doesn't he? Well, yeah. in the presence of ever watchful witnesses, basically it was a it was a, a prison where all the people thought that they were being watched, but they couldn't see. It was designed so that all the prisoners saw that they were being watched by someone in a tower, but couldn't actually see the person in the tower. And the idea was that if people felt that they were being watched, they would police themselves. And they don't know what the watchers are registering at any given moment, uh, but they don't know what they're looking for. Uh, but the ima- their imagination is what keeps them pliant. So according to Foucault, the act of watching itself is a devastating exercise of power, which has the capacity to influence behavior and compel conformity and complicity without our fully realizing it. Now, when you take this into the internet, there's a lot of proof of the limitations of what uh, of the panopticon but that's just the the surface of this article uh it goes on to talk about plato uh it says plato would be alarmed by the lack of shame online now shame is something that is really a dirty word these days uh but plato shame <laughs> shame 
it's evidenced by this podcast quoting Game of Thrones. Uh, he thought Plato thought that shame was a crucial emotion, indispensable for doing philosophy and acting morally. Shame presupposes that we ought to know better, but flout the rules regardless. Now that's precisely um, that we sort of we already possess moral knowledge. We already know the right way to live a just and fulfilling life. It's not that different from Saint Paul, actually, but are constantly diverted from the noble aim. So for Plato, shame is a force that helps us resist the urge to conform when we know it's wrong to do so. Shame helps us to be true to ourselves uh, and to heed the moral knowledge within. A man without shame is a slave to desire. Desire for material goods, for power, for fame, for respect. And such desire is tyrannical because by its very nature it cannot be satisfied. Foucault... And I know this is a lot to take in, but this stick with me. Foucault casts shame as a sort of the opposite. Uh, you know, if if sh- Plato saw shame as being something that keeps per- a person free, uh, free to be themselves, Foucault saw it as sort of less emancipatory. Um, he argued that sex, in particular, was mediated in Western civilization via the tool of confession, which involved the dispensation of approval and shame. But now, what does this have to do with being online? Well, confession, as we all know, can feel like liberation because it seems to unburden us of our shame. It can also be a forum for the display of virtues like honesty, bravery, humility, like you've seen in Augustine's confessions. But if one believes Foucault, it's always a ruse. We always confess to someone in the presence of an authority, real or imagined. When people post online, it is always for a supposed audience. It is never purely gratuitous. What manifests itself as a certain shamelessness, then, might in fact be precisely the opposite online. The approbation of the digital crowd has come to fill in for the authority of the confessor. People unburden themselves to their followers in the hope that their needs will be validated, their opinions affirmed, their quirks delightfully accepted, and the result is a growing conformity within camps, as well as a narrowing of the shared space for understanding and dialogue between them. So this kind of shamelessness is is what's in in fact is according to this article is what is uh keeping people um trapped and and sort of keeping them away from one another and in fact that shamelessness is what's enslaving here rather than uh the shame itself it's a, it's a it's a fascinating sort of inversion of what we normally think Lindy shame good or bad. I'm, I just think this guy has nicer Facebook friends than the average person. <laughs> I, I definitely see a lot of shaming when people confess. No, I, I mean, it's an interesting debate because I, I feel like whenever I've ever shared things on Facebook that were maybe a little out of the box or, or even like, I don't know, Instagram, Twitter, you, you get feedback that's not so positive so that's probably part of the conformity mm. conformity piece of it is we're all being watched all the time and that panopticon of we're all shaping ourselves into you know you don't mention politics on your facebook or somebody's going to start trolling you right have you have you been shamed on social media absolutely can you say any of the examples or no um i when i was in grad school i went to a a rally where Michelle Obama spoke about veterans and post-traumatic stress. And I just thought it was cool to see the first lady. And I posted a picture and 
the commentary got a little, got a little ugly. <laughs> Very quickly, you weren't. You just mean you weren't affirmed. It wasn't an echo chamber. So it was not an echo chamber. Yeah. There was definitely some criticism. Is Jill Biden the second lady? Like, how does that work? Oh, she's cool. That's all I know. Jill Biden got the Medal of Freedom today, and it was so moving. It was a surprise. It was right. But on to. Can I just say I want to disagree with Plato. I thought you were going to say with me. And I was but no, like, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> now, I want to disagree with Plato and via Aristotle and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I mean, Aristotle says, you know, here's the thing about shame, right? Shame always includes fear. So, like, if I did something I'm ashamed of, right? Like, you know, I did something really awful that I really think would characterize me as a terrible person, I always will have fear. Right, because if I get outed, it, it, you know, it, it, the shame's built in. It's a package deal. You, it, it, it's it's a mandatory mm-hmm. uh, f- fear is a mandatory extended warranty package on shame. But Aristotle says fear doesn't always include shame. If a tiger bust busted in here or a homicidal maniac with an AK forty seven, I would be afraid. I would not feel shame for that fear. Like sometimes fear is is yeah. not shameful. Like there are times when you feel ashamed of what you're afraid of because you, you, you and then it, then the fear comes back in. But th- there are times when you're just that anxiety trigger in your neuro and your nearest your, your nervous system does not uh, warrant shame. So I and then the other thing is Bonhoeffer and Brene Brown. So I'm bringing I have to be right here because <laughs> Aristotle Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer Brene Brown Bonhoeffer and I think Brene Brown is getting this probably from Bonhoeffer said like guilt is feeling bad about what you did. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. And so there's a certain level. I'm, I'm kind of down on shame. I think guilt is useful. appropriate and useful. And, and, and I think shame is more like what Frank Lake says. It's like neurotic guilt. He says like neurotic guilt is the guilt that we cling to, to sort of make ourselves a self without God. But he says real guilt. Once we feel it, can meet its mm. the bomb from Gilead and the cross. So there you go. So I am I agree with Lindy. I disagree with Plato on this point, although on other points I'm probably in agreement. And with Foucault, the jury is out. Mm. Now everyone knows what I think about these things. And let's move <laughs> That's on. That's where he stands, ladies and gentlemen. I made a stand. I made a stand. <laughs> That's quite a position, Pete. There we go. I'm impressed. When you know the charge is wrong, but the days and weeks get long. When you've got a hidden shame, hidden shame, shame, shame that I can't get free from the blame and the torture and the misery. Must it be my secret for eternity? Till you know my hidden shame, you really don't know me. Let's move on to forgiveness. Forgiveness, forgiveness. Can you be... Can you be partially pregnant? Can you be partially forgiven? David? I mean, that's the kind of the report here is another one from Science of Us about, uh, you know, breaking news. Forgiveness is not a binary state. It's really um, kind of a short interview with a, a researcher named Harriet Lerner who's written a new book about forgiveness. And um, 
it's a, I would say it's a mixed bag to say the least, but it's interesting to sort of think about and get you, gets you thinking, especially with how, how do you approach, approach forgiveness with, you know, completely with any kind of, you know, theological dimension sucked out. So here we go. Um, Harriet Lerner saying that when I read the literature on forgiveness, I found myself confused and it took me a while to sort out that the confusion was not mine. It had more to do with the way forgiveness is talked about and written about. What I began to be aware of is that forgiveness experts were collapsing the messy complexity of human emotions into simplistic dichotomous equations. Like you either forgive the wrongdoer or you're a prisoner of your anger, your own anger and hate. Either you forgive or your life will be mired down in corrosive emotions and you'll never move forward. The reality, she says, is that forgiveness is rarely so tidy and that placing too much faith in its powers can actually harm rather than help. Okay, so kind of so far so good in terms of th- forgiveness is not tidy. Um, she says she, but she goes on to say that it's actually there. There are plenty of times when forgiveness is not a good thing. It's terribly hurtful thing to put forth the notion, which is everywhere, that there can be no peace or healing without forgiveness. To suggest that the only way out of someone's unhappiness is that they have to transcend their legitimate anger and pain. Well, it's not anybody's place. Not your therapist or your minister or your coach or Facebook or whatever. It's no one else's job to tell you to forgive or not to. Now that's some strong terminology that has a very high view of our own instincts. Um, but she gets us to give a compelling example. She says, imagine if the hurt party can't exa- actually bring themselves to forgive the person who's hurt them. One of two things happens. On the one hand, they could power through, accept the apology anyway, and then grapple with lingering feelings of anger that now feel invalidated. Or on the other hand, if the hurt party says, I don't forgive you, I need more time, then that hurt party, the person who's been hurt, becomes the bad guy. And the wrongdoer feels self-righteous because they're angry the other person isn't saying, I forgive you, and blame is shifted to the one who doesn't forgive. True forgiveness, she says, this is kind of a bold statement, is something you earn and something you wait for. Something you earn and something you wait for. Um, the that is problematic to to my ears but where she says she says but i like this she says my simple answer to the question of how do you let go of obsessive rumination and non-productive of anger and hurt my answer is any way you can (laughs) (laughs) i like like that that. i like that so if for you that also that also means letting go of the ill will you feel toward the offender great if it doesn't that's fine too how I'm not sure how that would translate to actually letting go of obsessive rumination and non-productive anger. Anyway, um, here we, the very, the last uh, bit, she says, most people, it's probably fair to assume, would agree that forgiveness is typically a process, one that could take time and effort rather than something that happens instantaneously. So what to call that middle ground, the space between hurt and forgiveness, that where you move toward your goal? That too is forgiveness, Lerner argues. If you read the literature, it basically talks about forgiveness as an all or nothing thing, like being pregnant. She says, like you just said, Scott. But the truth is you can forgive the other person 95% or 2% or anywhere in between. Now, I mean, my eyes are rolling here, but in her book, she recounts the story of two of her former patients, a married couple rebuilding their relationship after an affair. The wife ultimately told her husband that she gave him, forgave him 90% of the way, but would always stop there. Sneaking his mistress into their home while she was away, she told him was an unforgivable offense. And that was fine, Lerner says. It was certainly enough for them to move forward with love and mutual respect without the wife having to feel like she was sacrificing her dignity or suppressing her true feelings. If true forgiveness can only happen at 100%, in other words, it's less likely to happen at all. So 
I again, I part of me sympathizes with this, just being a person in relationships and in a marriage, and and the lingering things you don't even know are still lingering a lot of times. However, I don't personally want to ever be forgiven ninety percent because I'm not sure that actually you receive any kind of forgiveness there. I, I, I'm going to focus on the ten percent. I'm not forgiven, and it's going to feel like a hundred. And I certainly, when we're talking about divine forgiveness, um, if we're talking about ninety, you know. Two, per, you know, ninety-two percent. God forgives you. I mean, that is an extremely dangerous and toxic way of thinking about forgiveness. So uh, I'm challenged by this. I'm interested in it, and I um, I see the two of you making eyes at each other, suggesting that uh, you have completely forgiven each other for every wrong thing you've ever done. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. Ah, one hundred. I think what's interesting is when she said forgiveness has to be earned. Like at first I read it as the person who needs to be forgiven needed to earn it. But I don't know if she meant that. I I almost wonder if she meant that the person who's trying to forgive has to earn like the ability to forgive by working towards it. I'm not sure if that's what she was trying to say. But I mean, I think like if you're the wife that forgave 90 percent, like, I mean, maybe you're at peace with that other 10 and it's honest maybe for her to say, I'm still angry about that other 10%. But I mean, I think what you're saying is like we should be striving for the 100%. But I think a lot of forgiveness is based around the person who committed the offense. Like they almost, they so want you're, you're saying some people rush to forgiveness when they, when they, they haven't done it yet. They haven't done the work. They haven't felt like, hey, well, I forgive you. It's fine. And then you have this. Yeah. broiling, you know, underneath and you have to work at it. You have to open it up. You have to talk about it. You have to think about it. Why, there, why is there that 10% that I can't let go of? Is mm. there, you know, for this woman, is there something about him bringing the mistress to the house? What about the house is like so, you know, yeah. overwhelmingly awful that I can't forgive it? I think like, for her to be able to forgive 100% would take a lot of work. Maybe that's And maybe it's maybe it's divine. Maybe that, well, that, is, that is by nature divine. I don't know. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think that that's uh, super interesting because a lot of times when people say, well, I'm really working on it, what they mean is I'm not working on it. Yeah, <laughs> leave me I'm, alone. <laughs> I'm really enjoying sort of feeling angry at you and being angry at you. And a lot of times people do stuff that we want to forgive, but we can't. So it is certainly murky when it gets down to it. But I also think that uh, settling in uh, for 90% forgiveness um, – uh, she wants to dis- she wants to sort of throw out the ideal of of someone being fully forgiven for something. Um, maybe uh, maybe that's only a divine thing. I don't know. What Scott, you're you're making eyes at me. What do you think? I, I was I making eyes at you? Well, I was making eyes at that's my. A, that's, iPad, that's a strong. But... <laughs> maybe that's a strong <laughs> phrase. <laughs> I've only got eyes. For, um, Forgive me. So th- there's a book I read a few years ago at the behest of my good friend who Lindy knows and. Is one of I mean he's one of your favorite people, Derek Woodard Lehman. I like yeah, oh, yeah. yes, of course. Uh, one of the smartest guys I've ever met, and he it's a book called by Philip Fisher, who is a I think he does English literature, and it's called the Vehement Passions, and he he talks about like Hamlet as like to be or not to be, right, as the quintessential like preview to modernity, where we're always like the Woody Allen feels like normative for us. We always have like seven conflicting feelings, right? And he thinks like in certain pre-modern literature, like the the vehement passions are not like in Homer are not looked on with suspicion. Like we almost think if we're divided selves, we're more reflective. But he thinks in pre-modern literature, 
in certain forms. That's actually esteemed. I think some of that is because like, look, anger, outraged anger can sometimes drive us to, you know, campaign for a law to, to, to stop discrimination or intense grief, which you can't like grief, anger, wonder. These are things like you can't feel six other emotions with. They're monarchical. They take over reality, right? Mm -hmm. So like when you feel grief, like, but then he thinks also the upside of that monarchical passion is you really come to appreciate the wonderful life of the person that caused the grief. Or he thinks like wonder at some phenomena can actually lead us to invention and discovery. And so I think maybe forgiveness when it's truly received, not achieved, like when you when you actually receive it and give the gift of its reception to somebody else is one of the, it's a vehement passion. Like it, it, it probably can't be, but I think Lindy, I agree with what you're saying. I think generally when we get to that stage where it becomes a vehement passion, where it becomes, where it, it sort of drives the car, there's generally been a lot of not papering over of the hurt mm-hmm. and accepting it. Uh, and then also be able, being able in the acceptance to maybe be graced to accept. Yeah, maybe there's also like a yeah. I think that I agree with what you're saying, and that's beautiful. The there's always a, probably a slight kind of a, a imputation uh, work there because a lot of times when someone does say, "Oh, we could things in reality," or <laughs> almost all are the fruit of imputation, yeah, I know. which well, is what your dad has taught me. Well, you could say, I, "I forgive you," and what you mean is, "I want to forgive you." I've almost forgiven you, but what the person hears is, "I've been forgiven," and almost that—that's all that really matters, you know, or at least if you're the person who needs to be forgiven. And so, and somehow that makes you more forgivable that, that moment, you know, who knows? This, these are, these are murky waters, but it's super interesting to think about. In the 500th year of the Reformation, you know, your dad of that Reformation episode, I'll never forget this. He's, he was talking about the fine points of the Lutheran Catholic, Catholic disputations. And he was saying it was all over Simo Eustace et Peccator. And he says, my translation of this today would be, at the same time, loved and human. And that's what yeah. imputation forgiveness offers us. Can you forgive me again? I don't know what I said. But I didn't mean to hurt you. And now we will move on to the film I have not yet seen. Have you seen it, David? No, it was still limited release. We're talking about we're talking about Silence, Scorsese's Silence that we talked about a couple weeks ago with uh, Mako and such a and, and Scor- the, the profile of Scorsese. Right now, what we've got is American Magazine, which is a Jesuit publication, has got kind of the interview with Andrew Garfield. He's also in the New York Times this week. Um, Garfield, who plays the central character in Silence, he also plays the main character in Hacksaw Ridge, which is another character of incredible faith. And uh, people sort of think that that movie is incredible, too. It sounds like Silence is is really difficult to watch. Um, But this interview is remarkable. Uh, After saying that Garfield kind of looks weary, that he's he's clear to come back into Hollywood after being away doing all these these two movies, these that are full of such depth and spiritual passion, um, 
he he talks about sort of what he looks for in a role. He says, I've been drawn to stories that are attempting to turn suffering into beauty. I feel like I've been gifted and cursed with a closeness to some grief, the grief of living, the grief of living in a time and a place where a life of joy and love is impossible or is, I mean, expletive impossible. Uh, he talks about doing going through the Ignatian exercises and how these really changed him and, and um, the you know, the great, uh, you know, practice of the Jesuits. He says, when I asked what stood out in the exercises, this is the interview, interviewer, Brandon Bussey, uh, Garfield fixed his eyes vaguely on a point in the near distance, wandering off into a place of memory. Then, as if the question had brought him back into the experience itself, he smiled widely and says, what was really easy was falling in love with this person, was falling in love with Jesus Christ. That was the most surprising thing. The experience was uh, surprising, perhaps because Garfield, like many people, came to the exercises asking for something else. Garfield says, the main thing I wanted to heal that I brought to Jesus, that I brought to the exercises, was this feeling of not enoughness, this feeling of that forever longing for the perfect expression of this thing that is inside each of us, that wound of not enoughness, that wound of feeling like what I have to offer is never enough. He goes on to say, he says, if I hadn't made the film, that would have been fine. But the one experience that I wouldn't want to sacrifice if I had to choose, it would have been going through those exercises. It brings me so much consolation. It's such a humbling thing because it shows me that you can devote a year of your life to spiritual transformation, sincerely longing and putting that longing into action, to creating relationship with Christ and with God. You can then lose 40 pounds of weight, sacrifice for your art, pray every day, live celibate for six months, make all these sacrifices in service of God and service of what you believe God is calling you into. And even after all that heart and soul, that humble offering, that humility, even after all that, someone is going to throw a stone and dismiss it. It's a wonderful, wonderful grace to be given, to be shown. And it's a huge consolation to know that no matter how hard I work, someone is not going to like me. There's going to be at least one person that says I'm worthless. It's wonderful. <laughs> this is exclamation point. And now uh, the, the writer closes um, with a beautiful paragraph. He says, at their core, the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola are about the personification of love, not the possibility of it. The possibility of love or its impossibility paralyzes us. But the personification of love, the vulnerable, wounded, beaten love that I saw in the heart of Andrew Garfield, the personification of love that he experienced as a midwife to Mary, uh, that's what you do. You sort of imagine you're a midwife, a nurse at the birth of Jesus. The love he guards in his, quote, hidden life, the love that lives in his longing to be seen deeply and appreciated fully, the falling in love that he continues to struggle with in his own relationships to God and to others. That personification of love is what redeems us all in the end. He's talking, of course, about Christ. If the impossibility of love leaves us longing, it is in the personification of love that we will find our satisfaction. It is in the personification of love where we will discover our enoughness. A Amen to that. Lindy, this, like, when I read this, it, it took me back to, you've written some pieces recently for the oncology nursing blog, right? Mm -hmm. You work with people that come to see you when their body's not working. It's often connected to probably lots of other feelings, <laughs> Uh, you know, like all the anxieties of life. I'm just wondering, like, your reflections on this piece. Well, I think, I think what's really neat about this actor is 
he played this role, and it seems like it like deeply affected him as a human being. Like he felt like the empathy for this character he was playing, and like he learned from this other person's life and from their experiences, fictional or not. And um, it was almost like he was given a gift with this empathy he was able to feel for a character he was playing and whose life he kind of took on for sounds like six months or so. Um, and I think, I think a lot of our society, we kind of shield ourselves from pain or from people and pain. And there's like a real gift that this, I mean, this actor's experiencing the gift of a priesthood to face this awful challenge. And sometimes um, like as a, provider you meet a lot of patients who are going through a lot of things that you normally would try to avoid and, and oh that's awful I, oh, oh, I'm so sorry I'm so sorry but like, you have to face it with them and I think that the gift of, of empathizing and seeing how people walk through different struggles and different pains and different paths I think um, like in the case of this article where he just finds such a, a, a real joy and, and it's wonderful and he's he's not even worried if people like what he did like he just found something beautiful in it and I mean, I think even in the hardest parts of life and the hardest challenges, it's it's just there's a lot of beauty there. Yeah, I was really moved by the piece in in, in the article where they said that what Ignatius, who you know really like after trying to be a war hero and it was broken by it, he was studying the examples of the saints, and he said that there was a deeper and more satisfying life that was revealed not only in their saintly example, but the intricacies of his own passions. The, the wounded reality of his inner life became a place of graced imagination. Ignatius' conversion began when he became sensitive to the, com to the complexity of his own interiority. And I think like, so it's the 500 year of the Reformation, 500th anniversary of the Reformation, right? And, you know, one of the things that, that Calvin taught was that even if the medieval Catholic Church doesn't teach justification by faith alone. There are lots of Catholics that think their only hope is Jesus. Likewise, you know, the PCA put out a study paper a couple of years ago, the Presbyterian Church of America, that said, we're not justified by our faith and justification by faith alone. But, you know, in, in, in the faithfulness of Jesus and our, in our clinging to him when there's all we can have is mercy. And so like, as Augustine said, there are many uh, wolves within and, and sheep outside. And so I feel like we, we spend a lot of time focusing on what divides us. And yet, I think all Christians at the end of the day, whether they're Ignatian, uh, it, it, Christians in our most graced moments, right, when we're most receptive and, less, and, and, and least law-oriented, realize no matter what verbiage we put to it, that we are saved by grace <laughs> and grace is enough as was the title of this article lindy thank you for doing this oh of course I thank you this was this is very fun and yeah. we will all be back here next week except me S except you but who knows we might you know <laughs> you might be here. I'll, listen. I'll listen next week <laughs> exactly. you're not just a listener now you're one of the hosts thank you scott thank you lindy thanks Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we referenced on our website, ember.com. If you like what you heard, please go over to iTunes, give us a rating, and write a review. It really helps. We exist because of the enthusiasm, generosity, and support of you, our listeners and readers, and for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast was produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted 
by my associate David Peterson, and this week helped especially with some engineering and mixing work by Dustin Coons. Dustin, thank you. Thanks again for listening, and have a great weekend. <laughs>